0: just to uh, recapitulate a bit, Siddhartha Gautama, who becomes the Buddha, seems to have had an experience that profoundly shocked him. It went against pretty much everything that he would have been taught in the religious environment of his times, as well as a great deal of what he would have instinctively or intuitively felt to be the case about the nature of his experience and reality. Another point that um, comes through in the reading of these early texts is that there's no suggestion that he had this final encounter with Mara or the demonic, this conquest of Mara. That's not mentioned at all. That comes in in the later, more mythical developments of the life story. Mara remains a constant in the Buddha's life from his birth right through till his death. It's simply a given, a condition of the world to be somehow limiting, obstructive, Um, against one's deeper values and understandings. One is always in confrontation with, with that, whether it be internally or whether it be in the structures of the world in which one exists, socially and politically. And we'll see this as the story progresses. What seems to have happened is the Buddha found this meditative frame of mind that he'd had as a child, he'd sat down at a tree, he started paying close, scrupulous attention to the sheer presence of what was occurring to him, and he woke up to the radical contingency of his existence with no solid core of self or ego or me within and no transcendent or divine ground of being beneath or beyond him. And initially, this seems to have been such a shock that he was simply lost for words. Others won't understand me, he thought. It'll be such a hassle to have to somehow communicate this. And yet, over the course of whether it was days or weeks, we don't really know, the text sometimes says six weeks. Slowly, this experience um, was integrated to the point where he realized, maybe not he realized, but the beginnings of putting this into words, giving it a form, became imperative. And this is how I would understand the appearance of Brahma which is the appearance of form. Remember that in Buddhist cosmology, Brahma is the lord or the god of the realm of form. So it's the beginning of something that's taking shape in his experience, something that he himself refers to frequently that had never been seen before. He clearly felt that what he had understood was something completely outside the norm of everything in which he had heretofore lived. And so he embarks on a mission, and I don't think that's the wrong word, to try to communicate his vision, his vision of what human life could be. And his first attempt at putting this into words backfires rather spectacularly with his encounter with the Arjivaka Upaka. And this is telling. It's, he, he, he discovers here that just to somehow make this claim, I am enlightened, is perhaps an inappropriate way to go. That rather than that, rather than saying, yeah, here I am, i figured out something very important, he needs somehow not to uh, tell people that, but somehow to show through his words and his deeds that this may in fact be the case. And so he heads from Gaia towards Sanath in order to meet his former companions. And, as he says, he says, Then monks, wandering by stages, I eventually came to Benares, to the deer park at Isipatana, nowadays called Sanat. And I approached the monks of the group of five. But, and if this were a movie, it would be cut to group of five. (laughs) And the group of fives um, agreed among themselves. Friends, here comes the recluse Gautama, who lives luxuriously. Not exactly by our standards, luxuriously. This is a man who has a robe and a bowl and begs one meal a day and wanders barefoot. But again, it's indicative of, um, of the kind of norms that would have governed the life of non-Orthodox religious or spiritual practitioners of that time. There was an enormous commitment to accesses, asceticism. The idea that the only kind of salvation comes from freeing oneself totally from all ties to this world. And the Buddha seems to have abandoned that. And so... Although the um, group of five agreed amongst themselves that they should ignore this man, their former friend, and then the text continues, however, as I approached, those monks found themselves unable to keep their pact. One came to meet me and took my bowl and outer robe. Another prepared a seat, and another set out water for my feet. And so there's something about his presence. We might call this charisma. And again, I feel that the image of Brahma um, is suggestive of this. The realm of Brahma is often associated with light. And in some ways, I think the emergence of form is also the emergence of a kind of inner luminosity, and this would have communicated itself through his love through his compassion through his joy in the possibility that others have and also a kind of innate creativity that he's about somehow to release into the world his understanding now the, uh, the text that I've been following for the last couple of days, the, the, tw- uh, su- the, the 26th discourse in the middle-length sayings, the Arya Pariesna Sutta, rather curiously takes us into the Deer Park, but it doesn't actually then continue with what he subsequently said. And to find this, we have to jump to a totally different place in the canon. One of the difficult things in reading these materials, is all sense of chronology is lost. And the first sermon, the first three sermons, in fact, that I'm going to look at today, um, are only found in sequence in the texts on the monastic discipline. Um, Even in... in They appear in the suttas, in the Sanyutta Nikaya, but again scattered about. But when we look at the Vinaya, the Vinaya means the discipline, the training of the monks primarily. Then we find this whole uh, sequence of events from the entering the Deer Park right up until the um, return to Magadha um, laid out in quite some detail and also chronologically. So that's the text I'm going to be following here. Now I've given you a a copy of of these three sermons um, which you may have read by now and so I don't want to go over them in too enormous a detail but really to just read them and offer some reflections on what I feel are the key points. So this is the first sermon. This is what he presumably, or is remembered as his having said to these monks. This is what I heard. The Lord was dwelling at Baranasi in the deer park at Isipatana. He addressed the group of five monks. One gone forth does not pursue two extremes. Which two? Indulgence in sense-pleasure, which is low, vulgar, ordinary, ignoble and meaningless, and indulgence in self-mortification, which is painful, ignoble and meaningless. So this, of course, is the famous middle way. And again, I think we're so familiar with this that it's often difficult to appreciate its radical nature. That he lived in a world in which religion and life in the world were seen as two entirely incompatible things. The Brahmins, those of that priestly caste, were the intermediaries in society between the gods and the world. But apart from that, one either was a renunciant or one who has gone forth from home to homelessness or one was someone who tilled the fields and raised the crops and gathered the harvest year after year. The Buddha seems to have realized that the way he had understood things opened up a third possibility, that one could be fully in the world, but not driven by its dictates and its repetitions and its demands, but one could be free within such a situation. And it was only another opposite, another side of a duality to believe that spiritual or religious practice entailed some kind of rejection of the world and an embrace of disciplines that detached you from it. And so it's in this regard, I feel, that we have a vision of an entirely other kind of personal spiritual life and another kind of way of understanding how human beings can live together in society. Now, these two points I'll be developing um, throughout the rest of the week, but particularly the day after tomorrow. So I'm not say anything more about that right now. This one, which is a tentative translation of the Tathagata, we've probably come across this fellow, the Tathagata, here, here and there. Tathagata is the word by which the Buddha refers to himself. And it's Often thought of as meaning something like the one thus come or the one thus gone. But I think it could simply mean a way of saying this one here. There's an expression in Pali, Ajiva Gata, which literally means the one who has gone to ignorance. But of course, what it means is the ignorant person. I think we've often taken this Gata too literally. It simply refers to a person who is in a state of tata, this, thus, the thus one, the this one. This one has awoken to a middle path that does not lead to either of these extremes. It is a path that generates vision and awareness. It leads to tranquility, insight, awakening and release. It has eight branches, true seeing, true thought, true speech, true action, true livelihood, true resolve, true mindfulness, true concentration. And again, we will have heard this a million times. But again, we have to try to see it in terms of its radicality at the time in which the Buddha is living. And this is the reason why I'm coming back again and again to trying to reconstruct the social and historical period in which this has taken place and taking out all the mythical stuff which I think obscures and confuses our understanding of the context in which this is being said. So here we have a path that quite explicitly is not reducible to, to, let's say, the practice of meditation or the practice of some kind of, of spiritual discipline, some kind of introspective search. But rather we have a vision of a human life which is a profoundly awake and aware one and yet embraces all aspects of human behavior rather than thinking one has to somehow detach oneself from all that. And in some ways, we can see the sequencing of these eight branches as mirroring his own experience that he has just come from in Uruvela, Bodkaya, through seeing this vision, this shocking vision of the radical contingency of things, is the first step. This then leads to another way of thinking about the world, which is in a way the appearance of Brahma, the appearance of this God, the beginning of form. True seeing is perhaps still within the realm of the formless, but from that formlessness, inevitably, there emerges the seed of form. First as an idea, as a sankapa, as a thought, a motive, an idea. And then it finds embodiment in words and acts and livelihood. And so the Buddha's movement from Bodhgaya through to Sanat and his making these very utterances to the group of five and then engaging with them and creating a community and interacting with society, all of that is an embodiment, a realization of the sequences of the Eightfold Path. He sees something, he thinks something, he says something, he does something. He creates a community which is able to survive and make have access to resources and within the context of that community and that livelihood he then focuses on commitment resolve effort to what most is most uh, of most value to one and this brings to mindfulness to concentration and the concentration though is not the end of the path but it's actually that which then turns back onto the nature of true seeing. So the Eightfold Path, rather than a linear sequence from one to eight, is actually a feedback loop. The the concentration then allows that seeing to be deepened. And as a consequence, the kind of imagery and thought that emerges from that Is enabled to come from a deeper depth. We have here a vision of enlightenment not as a state but as an ongoing process that begins within one's most intimate interiority but doesn't remain there, that moves out into the world, is fed by the interactions with the world which enhance one's ethical commitment to such values, which lead one to be more attentive, to be more focused, and that then feeds into the depths of one's vision. And this, I feel, is a process that, in a way, is continuous as long as one is involved in a world It's at this point then that the Buddha embarks on the Four Noble Truths. Again, it's striking that the first point he makes is equivalent to the fourth truth. (coughs) This is the middle way. It has eight branches. And when we come back on the next page to um, this is the Noble Truth of the Path, we find ourselves back at the middle way again. So in other words... The first three truths are his account of how we are able to enter that path. This, I think, is a crucial point. That the path is primary. The cultivation, as I mentioned on the very first day, the creation of such a path, the bhavana of such a path, is what the first three truths are concerned to lead us to. And again, the first truth is profoundly counterintuitive. He's saying, in order to find meaning and happiness and well-being in this world, in this life, we need to go right into the very heart of what causes us the most anguish. And again, much religion is in flight from such existential pain through the imagining of some better place, be it metaphysical or in some other life or in some other state of mind. The Buddha seems to be pointing the way to salvation, freedom, not by transcending the world, but by going deeply into its dark heart. This is the noble truth of dukkha, of anguish. Birth is painful. Aging is painful. Sickness is painful. Death is painful. Encountering what is not dear is painful. Separation from what is dear is painful. Not getting what one wants is painful. In short, the five clinging clusters are painful. The five aggregates, which always make me think of building materials, (laughs) are painful. Now, it's interesting that there's a slight difference in the text we find in the Vinaya to the text we find in the Suttas. The Suttas also add the term lamentation, grief, and despair, In the Vinaya version of this sutta, we just have these givens of life. Perhaps the most succinct way in modern colloquial idiom in which the first truth can be expressed is in two words. Shit happens. (laughs) (laughs) This is what happens when we get born. Grief, lamentation, and despair are of a slightly higher order. That's a reaction to what happens. The first truth is just concerned with, look, this is what happens here. This is the truth, he continues, of the origin of anguish, the craving that leads to repeated existence, given over to delight and lust, keenly indulging in this and that. That is, craving for stimulation, craving for existence, craving for non-existence. Again, a point we need to flag. This is not some nihilistic abandoning of the world. It sees the... um, the the dangers both in, in 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 craving or clinging to be as much as craving or clinging not to be the middle way finds its trajectory by avoiding those two extremes And again, very often, particularly in any kind of ascetic or renunciant religion, the world is somehow to be relinquished, and thereby we aspire for a total transcendence of it. The Buddha doesn't seem to be saying that, although, again, subsequent tradition may have given us that impression. This is the noble truth of the cessation of anguish, the traceless fading away and cessation of that craving, the letting go and abandoning of it, freedom and independence from it. And again, a point that I really want to highlight here. The cessation of anguish is understood not as the cessation of anguish or suffering, but the traceless fading away and cessation of that craving. This is what the text says. What the Buddha is concerned with is the fading away of that relationship, that clinging, grasping, clutching relationship we have, which is also in its its obverse pushing away, rejecting, hating, denying. It's a bringing to an end perhaps momentarily, perhaps in a much more continuous way, that relationship to the world, that neurotic clutching that actually generates that primary sense of existential anguish. And then this is the noble truth of the path that leads to the cessation of anguish, the path with eight branches, and then he goes through them all again. Now, what follows is, I I feel, the the core of the text. And I've set it, um, I've indented it somewhat in my translation. So the Buddha's laid out the map, but he hasn't yet given, as it were, Indications of as to how we relate to those truths. And again, when we often pick up a book on Buddhism or read some text, we think that the four noble truths are, as it were, four um, articles of faith. As a Buddhist, one believes that there is dukkha, that craving is its source, that that craving and that dukkha can cease and that the Eightfold Path will take us there. In other words, that's what marks you out as a a bona fide Buddhist. But the Buddha's approach is quite different. Such is anguish, he says, it can be fully known. It has been fully known. Such is the origin of anguish. It can be relinquished. It has been relinquished. Such is the cessation of anguish, it can be experienced, it has been experienced. Such is the path that leads to cessation, it can be created, it has been created. So with each truth, you find three, as it were, recognitions. First, the fact that such a thing is there anguish, its origin, cessation, the path. But then, and this is what is crucial, that each of those truths needs to be related to in its own specific way. Anguish is to be fully known. Craving is to be relinquished, let go of. Cessation is to be experienced, and the path is to be created. So each truth requires its own specific way of practice, and so it becomes clear when he talks of the noble truth of dukkha, he's also saying fully know that. And again, he—it's em- not just know it, but fully, pari, fully know it. What does that mean? It's not just having some knowledge of it, but somehow being open to it in a clear, attentive, total way. So therefore, when one experiences this dukkha, rather than give in to that that almost instinctive feeling we have to somehow shy away from it, or avoid it, or suppress it, or run off and do something more interesting or take a pill. He's saying, go into its heart. That's where this path begins, right in the heart of that pain. Of course, fully knowing also implies knowing it in the kind of meditative frame that we're working on here. Quieten down. Sit still. Remove yourself from all the busyness and hustle and bustle of your life so that you can have that equanimity, that calm, that clarity to fully see in a totally uncompromising way what is going on in this existence here and now. And it's such knowing that leads to letting go. So we can understand the sequence of these truths in terms of their respective tasks or injunctions or actions. Fully knowing anguish is that which leads us to let go of craving. When we really understand the situation we're in deeply, then we don't have to abandon craving in the sense of telling ourselves to stop it, but it will naturally begin to fall away. It will no longer be understood or no longer felt to be an appropriate way of dealing with such a world. It will fall away. It's it's the seeing that leads to the letting go. And it is the letting go, the relinquishing of craving, that culminates in the experience of cessation we let go, as it were, to a certain pitch, to a certain degree, or when when it's let go of rather than involving me doing it, it's that movement of release that leads to the experience of cessation. Now again, I've translated it as experienced. It's often translated as realized, but in fact, the Pali word um, is rooted in the expression to see with one's own eyes. See it for yourself, experience it for yourself. And that experience of stopping may only last for a few moments, one would hope that it would last for a lot longer. But all the Buddhist traditions, by which I mean Theravada, Tibetan traditions, and Zen, all agree that this moment of insight, of cessation, of liberation, is very often quite transitory. A flash, perhaps, a satori. In one of the Tibetan texts it says, the time it takes for 16 goats to cross a small wooden bridge... <laughs> <laughs> and this, 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 and this experience, this experience of cessation, is equivalent to entering the stream. This is sotapanna. Now, what happens in sotapanna, in entering the stream, is that one loses, at least in that moment the conviction that you are an isolate, independent ego. That is seen through. You're revealed as simply a contingent play of fluctuating mental and physical processes. What's also let go of is the notion that any kind of ritualistic activity, and again, in context, this would obviously be a jibe at the brahmins, and those who are, for example, worshipping fire and stuff. No amount of rites and rituals are really going to have any effect on this kind of path. And the third thing that falls away is any doubts you may have had as to the legitimacy, the authenticity of such a path. You now know for yourself. You don't have to believe anymore. And another point that's actually not listed in, those, in that particular formulation, but we find elsewhere in the canon, the Buddha says, at that point, you no longer need to depend on the authority of others. You become independent. In other words, at this point, you now know what it is that this path um, means in your life. You don't have to take somebody else's word for it. And it's that moment of stopping, of opening, that is the first branch of the Eightfold Path. So when the Buddha says, entering the stream, he's sometimes asked, well, what do you mean by the stream? And he says, the stream is the Eightfold Path. So again we come back quite explicitly here to the Eightfold Path as being something that begins with the experience of genuine insight. The, the cessation, the nirvana, is not the end. It's actually the beginning of the path. It's that uh, letting go that stopping, that then leads us to samadhiti, true seeing, which then leads to true thinking, through true speech, action, livelihood, and so on. And such a path has as its injunction, bring this into being, cultivate it, create it, bhavana, the term we explored on the first day. So there arose in me vision, awareness, intelligence, knowledge, and illumination about things previously unknown. As long as my knowledge and vision was not entirely clear in these ways about the reality of the four truths, I did not claim to have had a peerless awakening in this world with its humans and celestials, its gods and devils, its ascetics and priests. Only when my knowledge and vision was clear in all these ways, all the twelve ways, the four truths and the three aspects, did I claim to have had such an awakening. So here we have an entirely unambiguous description of what he means by awakening. And again, it's profoundly processual. It's not some single mystical kind of state that one then somehow is always in but rather it's a way of seeing the world that leads us to live in another way the freedom of my mind is unshakable he says this is the last birth there is no more repeated existence and again this is framed obviously in in the language and the culture of his time But again, we can understand this as, from this point on, he's no longer just repeating himself again. There's no more a sense of one's life as just a daily round of toil, going over and over the same stuff again and again. We can extend that, if we like, into endless lifetimes. It doesn't really matter. The point is the difference between living a path, a feedback looping path as opposed to merely going round in circles or it's sangsara. This is what the Lord said. Inspired, the five monks delighted in the Lord's words and while this discourse was being spoken, the the dispassionate stainless dharma eye arose in the venerable Kondanya who says, whatever originates is something that ceases, which becomes the kind of slogan of the early community. Whatever has a beginning will end, which again we can take not just as a kind of metaphysical reflection, but actually as an almost revolutionary recognition that this society, for example, that has had its beginnings can also have its end, that this neurotic state of mind that has had its beginnings also can have its end. Whatever arises, passes away, which again is another reframing of the idea of contingency, as indeed are the four truths. The four truths, according to Nagarjuna, Um, I think at the end of chapter 24, in his verses, says, uh, to see contingency is to see anguish, its origins, cessation, and the path. In other words, the four truths are framed in terms of when this is, that arises. When craving is, anguish arises. When the path is, cessation is possible. Pandanya, of course, was the older of the five ascetics who had actually been present at the Buddha's birth, or so the texts say. So it's somehow fitting that he's the one who gets it first. So we now go on to the second discourse. And again, I'm going to have to go through this fairly fairly quickly, but I'd like to cover it. Um, This is one of these... Marvellous texts we find in the Pali literature, but is curiously overlooked. Uh, it often goes under the title the Anatta Lakana Sutta. Uh, I noticed recently that Mahasi Sayador actually wrote a commentary to this. But what is often lost is this is the next talk he gave to the monks. Again, it's clear from the Vinaya, but it's not at all clear when you read the suttas. But we can see that this is very much a development and a complement to the first discourse. Again the Lord addressed the the group of five monks. The body is not self. If it were, it would not get sick. You could tell your body, be well or don't be ill. But because the body is not self, it does get sick. It's impossible to tell it, be well don't be ill. Now in the text, as is often the case, you just have the example of the body. And then it says, and likewise with the other four aggregates. But in saying that, that shorthand, we often just glaze over it. So what I've done in this translation is to try to translate it in terms of each of the next five aggregates. The second one is what Martine was just speaking of, feelings Feelings are not self. If they were, they would not torment you. You could tell your feelings, be happy or don't be sad. But because they're not self, they do torment you. It's impossible to tell them, be happy, don't be sad. Perceptions are not self. If they were, they would not confuse you. You could tell your perceptions, be true, don't be false. But because they're not self, they do confuse you. It's impossible to tell them, be true, don't be false. In each case, the word in Pali is uh, be sick and don't be sick, uh, be well. But obviously that would refer to the body with the feelings, perceptions. We need slightly to modify the language, or at least that's what I've done. Impulses are not self. If they were, they would not afflict you. You could tell your impulses, be like this or don't be like that but because they are not self, they do afflict you. It's impossible to tell them, be like this, don't be like that. Consciousness is not self. If it were, it would not distress you. You could tell your consciousness, be calm, or don't worry. But because it's not self, it does distress you. It's impossible to tell it, be calm, don't worry. Now, what's striking about this text is it, see, it gives it gives a, a sense of no self that we rarely come across elsewhere namely that if things were self you'd be some the, it would follow that you'd then be able to control them so no self is accessed in this text by recognizing how you do not have control over the very structure of your psychophysical complex and this of course is something that becomes abundantly clear when you sit still on a cushion and watch what's going on (laughs) (laughs) that you find that you're somehow assailed by physical emotional, perceptual impulsive and just simply states of consciousness that come and go and the Buddha is saying, Look, none of these things are you, because if that was really you, if that was really Stephen, then Stephen can say, Okay, body, stop. But the other irony, perhaps, is that once you recognize that none of these things are essentially you, no, not, you're not the body, you're not the feelings, you're not the perceptions, you're not the impulses, you're not the consciousness, then any possibility of finding self independently of those has also vanished. This is, an, this is the approach to Vipassana that we find developed by Tsongkhapa. I'm not going to go into this now, but his um, way of meditating on the nature of self is to first recognize that you are not identical to any of the components of your existence, and Then to recognize that if that's the case, on what grounds can you possibly have for talking about a self at all? If you take out the body, the feelings, the perceptions, the impulses, the consciousness, what is left? What is there that you can then meaningfully call you? How do I know, how do, when I say I something, you know, I feel, my body's, you know, I've got a pain in my knee, Um, I'm not feeling so great today. Um, I think that what's really the case is this or that. I'm going to do that. Every statement on which you are able to claim I is inevitably in connection through identification with a physical, an emotional, a perceptual, an impulsive, or a conscious state. So one... This exposes, as it were, the profound ambiguity of self. We can maybe explore that later. So what do you think, monks? Are your body feelings, perceptions, impulses, and consciousness permanent or impermanent? Impermanent, sir. Does what is impermanent give rise to happiness or anguish? Anguish, sir. Is it right to think of something impermanent and fickle that gives rise to anguish as This is mine, I am this, this is myself. No, sir. Therefore, monks, whether it be a past, present, or future body, one's own or someone else's body, a gross or subtle body, an inferior or superior body, a distant or close body, each body should be seen with true intelligence as it really is. This is not mine, I am not this, this is not myself. And so it is with any feeling, perception, impulse, or consciousness. Each should be seen with true intelligence. This is not mine. I am not this. This is not me. Seeing things this way, the attentive noble disciple disengages from the body, disengages from feeling, disengages from perception, disengages from impulses, disengages from consciousness. Disengaging, he becomes dispassionate. Through dispassion, he is freed. He knows, I am free. He understands birth is overcome. The good life has been lived. What is to be done has been done. There will be no more of this again. So again, it's very easy when one sees this within the template of of many lifetimes, that this would be seen as a kind of cutting off from life, uh, there being no more rebirth. But if we see it in the framework of the here and now, of our experience in this life, in this world, and I'm assuming that this is what the Buddha was primarily concerned with, then disengagement is, as it were, stepping back, a certain detachment, the problem is that we are we are excessively identified and caught up in and identified with these things to such a degree that they simply have us at their mercy. We're thrown around by feelings, by pains, by thoughts, by emotions. In some ways, I think, and again trying to see it in the context of its times, the Buddha is saying We're actually free not to clutch and cling and hate and reject. We can step back and we can see things as they are. Disengaging, he becomes dispassionate. Dispassionate, he becomes free. This is the moment of freedom. The capacity to be in the world deeply and awarely and compassionately, but not being of it, not being pushed and pulled and driven and driven nuts by this stuff. And that, I feel, is very much at the heart of what we do each time we sit and walk and lie down and stand with mindfulness, with attention. We're finding an open, free space. Not that we thus just indulge in that freedom, but such freedom becomes then the source of how we then think, speak, act, earn our living, and so on. We cannot disentangle this from the Eightfold Path. It's very common, though, that this kind of detached freedom is seen as the end of the whole process. It's not. It's the beginning. And I feel this is quite explicit in these texts. So rather than a removal from the world, it's what in French you call reculer pour mieux sauter, taking a step back in order that you can jump better, taking a run-up, as it were. But this is putting us into another relationship, another perspective on these five aggregates. It's not pulling away. See, unfortunately, even Bhikkhu Bodhi translates disengages as have revulsion for. Revulsion, that's very strong. Sounds to me a little bit like aversion. <laughs> 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 but the word nibindati in Pali, and this is something Andy Olensky pointed out to me, there's an image of that where it's it's, compares, it's like a dog a dropping um, a fully um, eaten bone. It, it's a dropping away. It's not revulsion. But unfortunately, that is often the message you get. This is a disengagement that allows a freedom that is the source of another response, another way of being in this world. This is what the Lord said. Inspired, the five monks delighted in the Lord's words. And while this discourse was being spoken, through non-clinging, the minds of the group of five monks were freed from influences. At that moment, there were six Arhants in the world. Now, um, again, what's striking is the Buddha does not make any distinction between the insights and the freedom of these monks and himself. Again, we have the, this is clear from, if we go back to the noble search, I have to stop in a minute. Then the bhikkhus of the group of five, being themselves subject to birth, seek, uh, having understood the danger in what is subject to birth, seeking the unborn supreme security from bondage nibbana, attained the unborn supreme security from bondage, bondage which is exactly the same expression word for word that he gives to himself so these i'm going to have to stop here we can you can we might start next tomorrow on the third discourse so this is the story really of how the buddha begins his teaching and these texts i think are crucial um, to understand what it is that he's on about, and they reward, I think, repeated close reading. So I would suggest that in you know in the coming days that periodically go back to these texts and try to think them through in a way that's not dictated by everything you've been taught so far about Buddhism. Try to hear that voice and try to experience in your own life, in this moment, what it means. So we'll stop there. We're halfway through this um, retreat now. We're, We're now in day four and we have four more days to go. And again, this would be a point perhaps to reflect on on how it's been for you so far, and perhaps to reflect on your level of engagement and commitment to what we're doing as we sit and walk. This is often the midpoint of a retreat is the time we're most removed from what we left behind and at the same time from from that to which we will return. And it's an extraordinary opportunity to be able to to reflect, to be aware, to think in a kind of um, seclusion, uh, a certain detachment, a physical detachment. So please try to make as much use as you can of the time that remains to us. This talk was given by Stephen Batchelor at Spirit Rock Meditation Center on October 24, 2005. It is an offering of the Dharma Seed Audio Archive. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.